0: Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading the Youth in Education podcast and welcome to our new series, The Life Pedagogic. In this series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing high profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. Guests will come from a wide range of disciplines, including internationally. These podcasts will be exploratory open discussions, inviting you into the speaker's worlds and encouraging challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening.
1: It's a question that continues to intrigue researchers and policymakers alike. Why do schools in London do so much better than the rest of the country? Scores of studies have been published exploring different hypotheses of what makes the difference. Is it because of the teachers who work in London? Is it because of the students? Maybe it's because of their parents, but perhaps maybe it's because of Sir Tim Brighouse. Our very first guest on the Life Pedagogic podcast led the London Challenge a central government programme in the 2000s that transformed schools in inner-city London from among the worst in the country to among the best. Over the course of an illustrious career, he's been a school leader, an academic, a leader in local government and an author. If anyone has the insight to understand how we can improve schools and education policy today, it's him. Sir Tim Brighouse, welcome to your Life Pedagogic.
2: It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'm looking forward to chatting to you because there's nothing I'd like to chat about more than how we improve schools.
1: Tim, the timing of this podcast feels quite cosmetic, especially given what you were just saying, as you've just released a new book about our schools improving on previous best, all about what we can learn today from the past. Could you tell us a bit more about how the book came about and its key messages?
2: Yes, um, And by the way, it links back to your first comment as well, because our start of the book, and uh, and with Mick Waters, we decided to do it over the period of lockdown in COVID. Um, The start of the book is really us saying to ourselves, the most important factor in success for children is the teacher. Uh, so, if you talk about school improvement, and I'm sure we'll talk about school improvement, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. it school improvement is important, but it's the teacher that makes the difference. There's a wonderful quote by Gino, who was a teacher, who came, he said, I've come to the frightening conclusion that it's what I do every day in the classroom that's important. I make the weather, I create the climate. I can humor or humiliate. And so he went on and we start our book, by the way, there. And if I say, well, research suggests that multi, the, the variability within a school is greater than the variability between schools. It emphasizes just what a difference a good teacher can make to a child's progress. That's always fascinated me.
1: So you start with the teacher in the classroom and then uh, where does your book go from there?
2: So we started with that and then in our book we reasoned, well, that may be so, but wait a minute. I mean, if, if, if you could get the phase you're in or the department you're in, if you're in a secondary school or the school itself, what they do makes the likelihood of me as a teacher making good weather each day either better or worse so the school does make a difference and it makes a difference to whether teachers perform and then beyond that you've got the local authority of you've now got multi academy trusts or and you've got the government So our book about our schools and improving on previous best is looking at all that, what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years and picking out points, which we can get to eventually, of of how and what we ought to do to create more success for more children. I reckon in my lifetime we've gone from educating well the few to educating well probably 50, 60 Percent of the school population, I think the balance of the school population, we we refer to the left behind third, or, or, or those who get nothing from the system, and it's those I'm very concerned about, and it's it, it, it's, it's something that I don't think we've focused on enough, um, but we're beginning to, and I think we're at a point, and I'm glad we're being we're talking now. Uh, we're at a point where we are about to enter a new age, one of um, hope, ambition and collaborative partnerships to replace an age that's been dominated, it seems to me, at any rate, by markets and centralization and managerialism from the DFE. We're trying to put right their mistakes. So that's where I am, Baz.
1: So much interesting stuff to explore, uh, Tim House. I want us, to, us now to dive back into the annals of your life. I want us to take us now to your very earliest days of schooling. Where did you grow up and what are your very first memories of being in a school?
2: Uh, I grew up in Le- rural Leicestershire and I went to a school called Woodhouse Ease that was three classes and my main memory is I've got blocked tear ducts. So my memory is really of a teacher having to put drops into my eyes uh, a couple of times a day and having uh, a baked potato for lunch because I went to school immediately. Well, the war, yeah, the war was almost over. I went in April 1945 to school and, and that's when I started. So my memory of that school is of caring adults and I can remember two or three lessons, because there were only three teachers in the school, and I remember uh, at about the age of eight, nine, ten, I, if, I, if I knew my history better, and that's a shameful thing for me to say because I once taught history, I, I'd know exactly when it was. It, it was during the Korean War, so I guess it was about 1948, 49, or thereabouts, and the head, clearly fascinated by what was happening, probably taken part in himself in the war, had come back, was head of this school and saw the Korean War as possibly the beginning of a huge confrontation, uh, which will be, I suppose, what's called now the, the period of the Cold War. Uh, and I can remember this vivid lesson and being hugely interested in it uh, by the way he described it. Uh, and, and that's my first memory If you got me to my second one, it would be transferring from primary to secondary school.
1: And I understand, Tim Brighouse, that after these generally happy years in primary school, you had something of a traumatic transition into secondary. Uh,
2: Because I went to a prestigious grammar school um, uh, in, in Leicestershire. Um, well, we might as well name it, it it, it was a direct grammar school. I went at the age of 10, uh, boys only, it's Loughborough Grammar School. My two elder brothers have been there, and uh, I was the youngest in the family. And off I went to this school, and I hated it so much, having enjoyed primary school, I hated it so much that uh, every night... Uh, I wept myself to sleep. Every morning I I was sick. Uh, And we used to have school on a Saturday morning, which was terrible because this happened six days a week. And after, uh, I must have been driving my parents crazy. Um, And after about six, seven, eight weeks, things changed. And they changed because my dad lost his job. And we moved to Lowestoft in East Anglia, a more sleepy place you can't imagine, a grammar school that was so totally different from the grammar school in Loughborough. I mean, it was co-ed, it was relaxed, it didn't send kids to university, not many schools did in those days, even grammar grammar schools, Will hardly have the success that they sh- they would have had uh, now. It's it's a story of the education, successful education of the few. And I went to this school, and and my middle brother, who by this time was in the fifth year, or what we would now call year eleven. Uh, the deal was that look, Tim, yeah, I'll meet you at break for the first week, and then after that you're on your own. And I remember distinctly uh, on the first day at break time, he came to seek me out. And I said, well, you can push off. Uh, I I don't need to see you. This is the most amazing place I've ever been in. It's wonderful. Um, and, And it was. Uh, And it drew a sharp distinction between a school that I remember in black and white, that's the one in the Midlands, and a school I remember in colour, and every memory is in colour, and the other one is all black and white. Um, And and reflecting even then, well, why why was the first school not not very good um, uh, in my view? for somebody like me? And why was the second school so successful? And I'm not saying it's true of everybody, which makes school improvement and school success and teacher success. The conundrum it always is. They deserve every penny they get because kids need different, different kids need different treatment.
1: Looking back now, Tim Brickhouse, as someone who went on to spend so much of their career improving schools, what do you think really made the difference at that new school in East Anglia?
2: My reflection on it is... um, because I quite often talk about, you, you've read all those columns about the teachers I remember. And the teachers I remember, I've always said, were, were the history teacher who would come in and argue one case in one direction, one lesson, and then the next lesson he would walk in do the same lesson again and argue completely the opposite direction and i became fascinated by him he, he collected stamps i wasn't remotely interested in stamps he was an angler i wasn't remotely interested in angling he was a debater and i was really really interested in that uh and i'd remember him and i'd write about him and i'd i'd write about the classics teacher who became a cause célèbre because he wanted to be on the local education committee got elected and then it was discovered that as a result of the 1944 Act, teachers couldn't be on the local education committee, couldn't be on the Lowest Off District Council because it was an accepted district. And although it was within Suffolk, it was deemed that because it was an accepted district, this guy who was the classics teacher couldn't be there and it hit the national press. And I learned a lot about him and he, he, was, he was the classics teacher and he... Created a, a love certainly of Latin, uh, less of Greek. Though I did do Greek at A level and did it very badly. Uh, tried to do it in two years and had forgotten even the alphabet. Though I did know about Omicron. Um, and uh, I, when I recall all that, I think you didn't, you don't remember, but I do. Uh, And you don't make a big fuss of, but I should. Uh, A guy called Mr. Gibbs, who was the maths teacher, and he was my tutor. And on that first morning, it was so welcoming as the tutor in the tutor period, got me a buddy. Uh, All my classmates were smiling and welcoming and spoke slowly. (coughs) He sang in a Suffolk accent. It's a slow, slow accent. And they seemed very laid back and welcoming. And uh, he said, now look, uh, Brighouse, uh, when, you, when you go into the lessons, just, just go up to the teacher and say, I'm the new, new boy. And they'll look after you, they know you're coming, uh, but just go in and say, yeah, you're, the, you're the new boy, Brighouse. So I, I, I did this. And then at the third lesson of the day, I went in and being, you can imagine, be, being, I had my head down a bit, really. And uh, as kids do at that age, if they're going into somewhere strange, they don't want eye contact. Uh, so I was shuffling up to the uh, desk and I said, I just ought to let you know, this was for maths, I, I'm the new boy. And the voice that I recognised as my form tutor said, I know that. Brickhouse, I I told you to uh, mention it, and when I looked up, there was such a kind, empathetic smile uh, that it meant a lot. It meant a, an enormous amount, and I'd say all that incident, that first morning, that that ar- so set the context that I overcame being a really bad school phobic. And by the way, at that stage in our history of education, nobody thought that schools made any difference at all. I mean, it's terribly important that people realise that. So it's only in 1978-79 that Michael Rutter and Peter Mortimer, Michael Rutter wrote 15,000 Hours, which was all about with with uh, uh, Peter Mortimer and his team, which was all about secondary schools and the secondary schools that made a difference. It was a study of 12 comprehensive schools in in inner London. And Peter Mortimer wrote something called School Matters a couple of years later, both based on research, and his was all about primary schools that made a difference and why they made a difference. And by the way, they stand the test of time, actually particularly Peter Mortimer. But what I'm saying is until then... Nobody thought that schools made a difference. They thought it was individual teachers and the kids and what they were born with and their background. Um, and that, our view of intelligence was that it was general, inherited, fixed, predictable. Um, you, It's terribly important to remember all that. But I knew different at the age of 10 because of that experience. I was intrigued. At that moment, I wanted to be a teacher. And I wanted to run a school because it seemed to me that schools can change children's lives and certainly individual teachers do change children's lives. Uh, and and that's what I've burned about, really. Tim Brighouse,
1: after you had this transformative experience, what kind of student were you in school? Were you, were you academic? Were you sporty? What were your interests today?
2: Well, I wanted to be sporty and I wasn't really very successful. I remember I ran the flag for the, I was the lines person for the, for the first team and i i ran I was so loyal in in being the lines person that the PE teacher had, had took, took pity on me and <laughs> I gave me a match on one occasion um and i was so delighted about that but I was not bad at cricket um and I played in uh, the, their team and I played for what was called the railway seconds in and I burned for all that, and in the sixth form, we were allowed... Um, you could get six lessons for something like one and sixpence in those days, six lessons at golf, and the local unpretentious golf club since got rid of. Um, I remember doing that and kind of being interested in golf, which I took up much later, well, in retirement, really. Um, be, be, because I knew I'd enjoy that. So I love sport and I've always have loved sport. And my major problem is that I, I'm, I'm not very good at it. Though I, I try to improve on my previous best and that phrase is incredibly important in whatever you do. Academically, I was always doing pretty well. I remember being so shocked when I tried to get into Oxford because I thought it, this is a breeze. And I walked into Magdalen College in Oxford and there were 300 other boys there, all of whom have been to public school, all of whom seem to have read all the books that i had never read. Uh, and I, I completely flunked, as I did trying to get into Merton for the same reason. Though on that occasion, I wrote an answer on the Eastern question in the 19th century when the question was, Uh, examine the eastern question in the 18th century so I wasn't too surprised uh, that I didn't do very well there but 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 that's that that's my academic background it's not really very serious I began to burn about an issue about education
1: let's keep going with your your journey to university at Tim Brighouse so going from a school in East Anglia where most of your peers wouldn't have gone to university to going to Oxford University of all places. Uh, It must have been uh, quite the transition.
2: Yeah, it was, but very much, uh, very much softened. And and, uh, having had that change of school, I realised that the environment in different places would be different. And I'd had that experience of Magdalen and Merton, which I thought were wonderful architecturally, but I wasn't too sure I was going to enjoy being in the company of public school boys all the time. I hope those of your audience who are public school boys will forgive me for that. Don't forget I was only 17, 18 at the time. And incidentally, it was at the time when I was by 15 days too young to do national service. But most of the universities had... um, put people off for two years while they did national service and they were returning. So when I actually got to Oxford, I found that I was one of the few who were aged 18 and most of the people who became my friends were 20. uh, And that didn't seem to make much difference uh, at all, though I thought they were much more mature, but I was much more inclined to be able to, fit in the studying more easily than they had, because they'd spent two years, I don't think, studying all that hard. Um, But I went to St. Catherine's Society before it became a college, uh, which is now the music faculty in Oxford, in St. Aldates. And the wonderful thing about St. Catherine's Society in those days was that it was really... Well, is it part of the university? Well, it was part of the university, but it was a non-collegiate college, that is to say, no residence, so you were living in digs. And um, it was the master of the college who built the new college, who was the person who made the new college happen, was Alan Bullock, Lord Bullock. And he's a Yorkshire man from Bradford. And he teamed up with... Alec Clegg, probably the best education officer that has lived. Uh, and incidentally, if you look at the amazing success of the performing arts, particularly the pop scene in performing arts, uh, that, that is the UK's glittering success story since in the last 50 years or more uh the origin of that is is Alec Clegg in the West Riding he was the first person to really introduce um okay. the performing arts arts etc drama uh he founded Bretton Hall now part of Leeds university uh, which was devoted to the arts and produced amazing people including uh, uh including i think blizzard um um, proper, and certainly Ken Robinson, who many of your audience will know, and if you don't know, uh, Google, Google Ken Robinson and look at the very small clip of about five minutes which analyses what's wrong with our schooling system in a way that I find enviably uh, both amusing and telling and accurate. But my, back to my point about Clegg. Clegg? was a pioneer for kids who were the wrong side of the tracks. And so uh, Bullock filled St. Catherine's Society with people from state schools rather than from public schools. So it was rare for you to meet public school boys. It was much more a group of state school uh, youngsters who who were in, in St. Catherine's Society.
0: And now,
1: a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools to improve student grades and reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Arc Schools, use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flipped learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote C-F-E-Y for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk.
1: And from your academic studies, I'm guessing you went into teacher training?
2: So I enjoyed that. Then I did a PGCE in Oxford as well, uh, which involved me for the first time uh, encountering uh, the classroom uh, and... uh, I did it I remember being fascinated by special educational needs and did a little a little study on a, on a, a school that was uh, what would we would call which would be in those days called educationally subnormal mild school moderate learning difficulties you would recognize it uh, and and I spent quite a lot of time in there looking at that I, and and other than that, off I went to to um, the High Pavement School in Nottingham, where there was a man called Harry Davis, an extraordinary guy, who became the director of the education department at Nottingham University. Now Harry Davis, who had on his staff, by the way, Stanley Middleton, and if anybody's short of a novel to read, Stanley Middleton's novels still tam- stand the test of time. And... And and I was there for a term uh, and uh, abandoned by the PGCE. And um, I was only observed by the PGCE tutor once, and he came and looked at me, teacher, and he said, well, he said, it's not an A. How about B double plus? So I said, "That that's fine with me. so that's that was his rating of, of what I was like at that stage. And don't forget it was a boys' grammar school, so it's very different. Uh, and uh, had all sorts of interesting characters in the school, uh, one of which went, went on to be um, a, a multi-serial killer. Uh, and I remember teaching him history, uh, as, as I joke occasionally, really in poor taste, well... I taught him all he knew, Um, but uh, it it had loads of people who were terrific. And so that's how I first uh, tasted teaching. And then off I went to my first job, which was when I first bought the Times Educational Supplement. Um, Incidentally, that's an interesting point. The editor of the Times Educational Supplement shortly afterwards and, and a most famous editor it ever had, was a guy called Stuart McClure. And Stuart McClure, when he, when Mrs. Thatcher uh, was Education Secretary between 1970 and 74, off would go uh, Stuart McClure, and he would write the most, the most excoriating leaders about Mrs. Thatcher's policy. But what he did was, can you imagine a world like this? He, he, he on the Thursday, he would take her for lunch at the Athenaeum. Uh, I've never managed to cross the doors of the Athenaeum and, and give her lunch, but warn her that she wouldn't like his leader the following day, but it was not meant personally. It was just that, the, that, that what she was proposing was wrong. I, I've always wondered about that, by the way, because um actually uh, Mrs Thatcher introduced a white paper called a Framework for Expansion in 1971, which which was absolutely wonderful. But of course, the oil crisis intervened and the whole whole view of education turned and became a kind of for well over a decade there was a kind of feeling of how, how much can we cut out of education? So it wasn't taken very seriously. So Switching back sorry i'm I'm digressing uh, but but I'd got myself to the point of wanting the first job, and that first job was in Buxton in Darbyshire.
1: And from what I understand, Tim Brickhouse, you made the transition from teaching into school leadership fairly, uh, fairly readily. Um, what was uh, what, what what prompted you to want to be a school leader? What was your experience of coming out of the classroom more and kind of taking on more of an overseer role in a school?
2: My first job was in a girls' grammar school in Derbyshire as a head of a history department, which is bizarre. Um, and the second job was in a secondary modern in South Wales, where I became the deputy head and warden, and it was modelled on village colleges, so it's called a community college. Uh, And that's where I learned to teach properly, I think. Um, And did, what did I by this time, I wanted to be a head teacher? There was no doubt in my mind I wanted to be a head teacher, and incidentally, in my subsequent career, where i 've been responsible for running local authorities, uh, the heads have all said to me with a smile, "Rise, smile, your problem is you were never the head uh, and and you clearly miss it and what what you, you should have done it, and then you 'd know a bit more about it. They would say to me um, kindly of course. Um, And, uh, well, what did I enjoy? Did I I notice a difference? Well, by this time, don't forget, uh, driven by my um, 10 years experience, the the experience of the 10-year-old, I knew I wanted eventually to run my own school, and I found myself in a school where the head uh, was a delightful person, but bizarre. Uh, I'm probably he. He'd been ahead of history, and it was in South Wales. And uh, and and he, he, the the head of the school along the road said to me, "I don't know how you're putting up with all this. Why don't you go for a job as assistant education officer for, for sites and buildings in the education department of Monmouthshire County Council?" I said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't. I'm not immediately attracted to that." He said, yeah, but you would be because it's going to be the post that looks after com- comprehensive reorganisation. And if I've ever seen, met somebody who really enjoys the complexities of what's going to do, yeah, I said, but I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to, have to leave teaching. I'm going to lose touch with the children. I quite enjoy all that. Uh, and he said, well, there's no reason to do that. You could agree with the people within the office that you do a day a week in teaching. So off I go and get the job uh, and discover, of course, he's dead right. It's really fascinating. Couldn't persuade anybody that uh, it was a good idea to to spend a day teaching. So I spent a lot of time in schools, because you would not sites and buildings because you're visiting schools all the time. And then I went to a similar job in Buckinghamshire uh, where, where I had my first brush with comprehensive reorganisation. And Buckinghamshire
1: at the time was a county dominated by grammar schools. Something you worked to oppose.
2: Those of you who know Buckinghamshire will know that it is a selective county, and that this was not the preference of the education officer at the time, Roy Harding, nor his deputy, David Davison. Uh, and I can say all this because all the actors are no longer with us. Uh, but. Uh, they wanted to go comprehensive, and in the end, they did go comprehensive in Milton Keynes because it was a new city. And we were involved in building Stantonborough, which at that time was an avant-garde and very, very successful school, though it, it's moved through different periods since. But I remember going to um, going to the Royal Grammar School in Buckingham and talking to the head. Uh, a man called George Embleton, really, really nice man, and saying to him, George, he, he, by the way, his qualification for being a head was that he had been in the Navy. Uh, it wasn't that he was a teacher, but he, but, but he ran this grammar school, really nice man. And I said, Well, George, you know, look down the, the road there, the, the head teacher's just going to leave, that was the secondary school. Why on earth don't you take it over? I mean, you know, somebody like you can run anything. Uh, and he, he swallowed the uh, the bait and, uh, and and my next stop was Sir William Borley school in Marlow, uh, where the name of the head was a man called Hazleton I can't remember his first name but uh, had a similar conversation with him so back I'd go and I say to the deputy David I said look they're in the problem here uh, Marlow and Buckingham will go comprehensive. Are you sure, he said. So, and I explained what had happened. And there was much amusement that the bait had been swallowed. Uh, and he said, well, that's really, really good. Well, we'll leave it to both of them to put it to their governors. So they put it to their governors. Now, unfortunately for me, uh, the chair of the governors of Sir William Borlase at the time was Sir Aubrey Ward, who was chair of the county council and was flatly against going comprehensive, and I fe- and the chair of the governors at, uh, in Buckingham was a man called Sir Ray Fernie, uh, which is a name a historical name that you'd recognise, and uh, he too went mad at poor old George Appleton. So both of them said, well, look, it's that, it's that scurrilous youngster Brighouse who put us up to all this. Uh, oh, we'll see to him. So uh, the following week, the, the deputy and the chief officer they called me in for a drink. and They said, you would not believe what has happened in the last 24 hours. We've been bombarded with uh, complaints about you. I said, yeah. So they said said to me, but carry on doing what you're doing.
1: Tim Brighouse, clearly not someone who's afraid to ruffle the feathers of the establishment. Um, An ongoing theme in your career. How did you go from Buckinghamshire to London?
2: Uh, So that was fun. And that led me to a time uh, in London at the Association of County Councils, very short time, learned. Then I had dealings in the Burnham Committee, met all the leading DfE officials, and then I was deputy to Peter Newsom in the ILEA. So that enabled me to get uh, a time, the time didn't last that long, I was probably... Two years there. I've been two years at the OCC. I was beginning to wonder, can I do more? I've been five years in Bucks, which is a reasonable time. Off I then go to be education officer in Oxfordshire for 10 years. Um, but, but, But the ILEA thing, Baz, turns out to be absolute gold experience when it came to the London Challenge, which I'm sure we'll return to before we're done.
1: Absolutely, Tim Brighouse. Uh, I want to take us now to your time uh, after Oxfordshire when you were at uh, the Birmingham Local Authority, where I understand that you had an incident of sorts with the then Secretary of State for Education, John Patton. I would love to hear from your perspective what happened.
2: Well, what happened, uh, I have to be careful because you sort of signed binding orders. But as I arrived in uh, Birmingham... um, in, a, in the September I'd only been there a few weeks le- less than a few weeks a fortnight and uh, John Patton uh, chose to say at a fringe meeting of the Conservative Party that Birmingham had done this crazy thing in appointing an absolute nutter who ran around the streets frightening the children this was front page news it was all all over the uh, BBC New- News 10 and the ITV News. And somebody who was there came round and gave me the copy of the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, tape of, of what was said. I hadn't kept it on uh, television. Then I did manage to get a copy on the television. And he he, he at that point, Jack Straw who was shadow spokesperson of education. And by this time, because I'd been in Oxford for 10 years, then in Kiel, the Labour Party was kind of using me as an informal advisor when they met about education. And Jack Straw sent me a note and said, look, don't worry and get in touch with Geoffrey Byman. Geoffrey Byman was a very, very able solicitor who picked up uh, cause célèbre. And he saw this as a cause célèbre. So he came round one night uh, on his way back from, I think, Stratford, and he rolled into our house, the one I'm in now. And we showed him the tape and he shook his head and he said, you can never be 100% confident, but you can be 99% confident, and I'm 99% confident that you'd win a case when it went to the High Court uh, for slander. So I, th- I said, well if he'll apologise, I don't want to do that. And so we tried uh, endlessly to get John Patton, the Secretary of State, to apologise, and he wouldn't. So it began to take its course. Um, My partner, wife Liz, uh, being extremely worried about the financial uh, implications of this. But we set up a uh, a a fighting fund via the T S and the Guardian, and raised twenty five thousand quid. Uh, and in the end, I I'd arrived in Birmingham. This was not a good start. I didn't think. Um, but at one of my very first meetings, the leader of the council, Sir Richard Knowles at that time, a, a, a frightening figure. It can be a frightening place, at Birmingham politically. Um, And and somebody was questioning me, and he growled to the fellow councillor, if I were you, I'd leave him alone. You might find yourself up in the High Court if you you go for him. I'd leave him alone. He said, mind you, it'll be a different matter if he doesn't win his case. Uh, Fortunately, the case didn't get resolved for 12 months, and... uh, For 12 months, I led a charmed life, and it went very, very well. And we established that, you know, improving on previous best. I kept saying improving on previous best. All we want is to improve on previous best. So every school, try to improve what you're doing. Let's have outcomes that are very slightly better. And I said I would resign if any year, in any way, there was a dip. Um, in the overall results of Birmingham, knowing damn well that I would get enough following that it would go up. Uh, and it started to go up. And by the way, that's so much better a catchphrase than celebrating success, because improving on previous best is, is what good athletes do. It's what people who excel at sport do in every way. It's, it's what anybody in any field that's, that is a specialist field is trying to do, a musician is trying to improve on Previous best all the time, and so it, it seems to me it's the right watchword for education. And by the time we settled the following June, things were so good in Birmingham that I've often looked back, uh, and I gave all the money away to charity, uh, including the, uh, the the money that had been raised. So the whole thing cost me some money, but it it didn't cost me much because I was uh, I, by that time. Um, we had established a culture in Birmingham that was inexorably improving and everybody felt really good about, about demonstrating with data that things were getting better. Uh, so uh, that's that's how that happened.
1: And I take it from here, Tim Brickhouse, you made the move from Birmingham to London. And that, of course, brings us to, I suppose, what many people would perceive as being the jewel in your crown, which is the London Challenge. How did you make that transition to London? And most importantly, how did London Challenge come about?
2: London Challenge came about at uh, Estelle Morris, who was a a very close friend, Uh, and at her She, she, she knew I was going to retire from Birmingham and she was about to become or had just become Secretary of State. Now, she was a friend as well as the local MP for Yardley. I, I, I think the world of her. Uh, and and she, she's been a teacher all her life. And if you want a life pedagogical, by the way, she would be a wonderful Life pedagogical. Anyway, she she wanted uh, the London challenge to happen, and she said, "Would you do it? You'd you'd have to apply, and you might not get it, but are you interested?" And I said, "Yeah, I would. I'd would love to do it." Uh, by that time, I felt knackered, uh, nowhere near as much knackered as I now feel, but I did feel knackered. I couldn't carry on doing, you know, which is the normal thing I've been doing for years, which is which is really, quite honestly, more than 12 hours a day and and non-stop, really. Um, But I loved it. And that's, of course, why Birmingham got good, because we got loads of people who also loved it, who lived to work and and loved what we were doing and the changes we were making. So when I get... So she said, how about doing it? So I decide I apply and I, I got the job against competition.
1: So at the time you arrived to take up the mantle of London Challenge, Tim Brighouse, schools in inner London are among the worst in the country with a terrible reputation. When you wrap up your work on London Challenge five years later, schools in those same areas are now among the best in the country. What did you and your team do to make this difference?
2: Well, now, why did it work? Because it did work. I mean, everybody's agreeing it's work. it worked, but... They, they put it down to different things, as you rightly said in your introduction. If you ask me, well, what were the vital ingredients? The vital ingredients, it seems to me, were uh, the following. Uh, first of all, the teacher, and you remember, we started with that, and it was the teacher. What I knew was that we had to, A, attract, B, retain, even for a year or two longer, the very best teachers. If we could do that, and if we could improve leadership, and I had lots of help from Steve Mumby at the National College, and if the government would invest a bit, and they did, um, and if I could get colleagues to talk about improving on previous best, it was a bit, I don't know if you know that, no, that novel, Beaugest, which is about the French Foreign Legion, where Beaugest is forces um, a rebel army to surrender when it's only him there, because he sticks, sticks, which are, he says, are rifles over the mountaintops, etc. Uh, to some extent, the London Challenge was a bit like that, because there weren't very many of us. And so we pushed communication like mad. Improving on commun- uh, previous best was a watchword as well. I got together a group of people, some of whom, one of whom worked with me in Birmingham, all of whom I had come across. And they, they were people who knew how things worked and knew that more than one way works. Uh, and, and they also knew what wouldn't work. And, and so right at the beginning, we changed the language. We changed the language enormously. For instance, I remember the, 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 the civil servants and the ministers, they were talking about failing schools. I said, well, if we talk about failing schools, I'm off. Uh, They're keys to success, I said. If these keys to success schools can succeed, anybody can succeed. So we changed the language a lot. Um, I had this amazing advantage, which I only realised as I was doing it, which is people would come up to me and say, you're one of us. We remember you when you were deputy in the Inner London Education Authority, which was, you know, i have been a deputy in the Inner London Education Authority 25 years earlier, and suddenly it tumbled to me. It meant that the lively young teachers who were in the ILEA, related to me for a brief period, followed what I'd done, was still in London, and so around the various networks, when this guy is not somebody parachuted and who doesn't know what they're doing, because even if and London often does feel that it knows all the answers, and that, you know, Birmingham is a pale imitation of London, which... Uh, by the way i'm i'm'm I'm with Birmingham on that they They used to have a tube ticket up on the wall saying, "Put London behind you, we have um, so I'd represented these two huge urban areas that are in competition uh, but nevertheless uh, I was accepted as one of them and uh, so we that was another vital ingredient. A third vital ingredient was using data in a way that we produce what's called families of schools. So if you can imagine, it's a crosshatch with the horizontal line uh, points per pupil and the vertical line rate of improvement. And if you imagine a cross on that, then your bottom left-hand corner would be low rate of improvement, low points per pupil, uh, not waving, but drowning. And your top left would be high rate of improvement, low, low points per pupil, heads above the water. The bottom right hand would be high rate of uh, of points, but not of improvement, treading water. And then on the right hand column, it would be high rate of improvement high points per pupil walking on water and what we did was we produced for 400 secondary schools and then for all the primary schools we produced families of schools so that London being such a huge place uh, you weren't looking at schools as each school got these you weren't looking at schools that were close to you necessarily but they were in similar socioeconomic circumstances with similar kids. In your family, and you could see which ones were doing well, which ones weren't doing well, and you could see whether that was true at secondary for each subject, and you could see at primary if it was English and maths or it was it English or maths. And then, with the help of consultant teachers, uh, we we were we were enabling schools to get alongside each other, encouraging them to visit, etc., etc. That was key absolutely key to what happened
1: and now a quick word from our sponsor
0: Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools to improve student grades and reduce teacher workloads teachers at over 150 schools including St Paul's Girls' School, Michaela Community School and Arc Schools use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning consolidation of classroom material and as a flipped learning tool. Look a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote C-F-E-Y for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk.
1: And Tim Brighouse, given that the changes before and after London Challenge were so vast, do you think that there were any other factors at play?
2: Now, you may say, was it a change in parents or was it a change in... Pupils, And I I would say this, well, there have been changes in pupils and parents for 50 years before the London Challenge, and London wasn't doing well. And when you add those ingredients to the change in pupils and parents with the teacher as the focus, you can't fail. I kept saying to people, we're doomed to succeed. We cannot fail. And we didn't. We, we 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 succeeded. But put that down to me, no. Put it down to the teachers, put it down to the leaders in school, because they, on a day-by-day basis, were making children's experiences better than they'd ever been.
1: You say that, Tim Brighouse, but I have heard from, uh, I have read stories that your compassion, warmth, uh, your ability to speak to uh, head teachers and teachers in a way that they possibly weren't used to from local, relatively local administrators uh, was a powerful part of what made a difference in London Challenge. Do you think that there's something to be said for the idea that you brought a kind of a homespun kind of local feel that you had when you were growing up in East Anglia to the inner city of London? And that's one of the things that made a difference to London Challenge.
2: Well, of course, that would be romantic, and I am a bit of a romantic, and so I'm inclined to say yes, even if my cognitive uh, faculties and reasoning is saying uh, that that might be an exaggeration. What I would say is that the nicest thing ever written about me, uh, and I'm old enough now perhaps to accept it, is the second Ofsted report of Birmingham where they said, that a culture had been established from the top, which now permeated every school that they visited. And that culture was around my early story to you of the difference between that school and the one in the Midlands and the behaviour and my noting that behaviour and maybe empathising with that behaviour. Uh, uh, And so if you ask me the most important things I did, then it would be writing letters in those days. And by the way, I still think it is. uh, Emails get lost, but there's nothing wrong with sending good emails. Writing letters both in Birmingham and in London, where after, after visiting a school, trying to write letters to all the people you've met and write other letters where you persuade people within your system to tell you of good things they've seen. So you can say, look, Joanne was telling me the other day, Joanne Smith, our advisor for the whatever it would be, that this happened and I just wanted, just between ourselves to say, I, I think it, it, it cheered me up because we're so lucky to have people who are committed like you. And I did an awful lot of that, thousands and thousands of letters um and of notes and I did it in Birmingham I did it in London and I'd do it wherever I was and if I was in a school I'd be finding ways of doing that because the likelihood is if you think of all those things that make the culture different make people feel included rather than excluded so I'd be terribly worried about assertive discipline zero tolerance mechanisms etc etc if you do that within schools in the same way that, that showing interest and private words with individuals, then you are going to build a culture in which fewer people slip between the cracks and have, in consequence, a fulfilled life committed to fulfilling others.
1: Tim Breakhouse, I want us to take us uh, to zoom out a little bit now and look at your your whole career in the round. Is there anything in education policy that you feel you've really changed your mind about? And if so, what do you think changed your mind?
2: Uh, Well, of course, it changes an awful lot as events change. So, for instance, if you took school improvement, and it's the thing that fascinates me, um, I, I don't think I'd thought enough about context. So, for instance, if you looked at... Appreciative inquiry and problem solving and enforcing compliance, which are three, you know, appreciative inquiry, you look at what's good, you kind of dialogue for be- even better practice, you decide what you're going to do and you have an action plan. And that's that creates energy. And then problem solving, plenty of them around. There's problems, you analyse, you weigh up the pros and cons, you decide what to do, that uses energy. Balance that. And finally, enforcing compliance, you know what you needed to do and, and you you set out a plan, you do it, you tell everybody to do it, and you punish the deviants and the inadequates, and that enforcing compliance is too has developed too much. When when uh, you intro- when we were talking, you you, you said to me that you had read something today which suggested that um, the London Challenge was the foundation of all that Michael Gove would had done. I'm sure he learned from the London Challenge but he didn't learn that you don't enforce compliance and you don't enforce compliance unless you're in crisis and that's what I've become really interested in um, and changed my mind about I used to think it was if if you had a recipe for leadership and school improvement you could apply it anywhere i I I think that's far too simplistic. It's a much much messier world. So I'm wrestling with that at the moment. I mean, do you do you say um, you do the same things if a school's going very well as when it's dysfunctional? No, you don't. You apply different uh, characteristics, behaviour, leadership behaviours in different uh, qualities um, in a in uh, a dysfunctional school if Either is in crisis, there's a difference again. And and I've been analysing that and thinking about it, and so I've changed my mind about that. The other thing I keep changing my mind about is knowledge. Uh, it seems to me that knowledge is mainly because uh, Michael Gove and particularly um, Nick Gebb are so preoccupied with knowledge and they refer to Hirsch. And encourages to read for Hirsch. Well, when I read Hirsch, I don't find myself disagreeing with much, but when I hear them talking, I do disagree a lot because they want to they want to narrow what knowledge means um, and not allow in other things. Now, I don't mean I think knowledge there is self knowledge, there is knowledge of other things. Um, there there is a difference between knowledge and learning. Um, I'm in the middle of wrestling and talking with Mick Waters in particular as a result of doing the book we've done, which I hope people will look at because it it sets out what I think is another period of, of doubt and disillusion which we're in and the possibility of a new age, as I've mentioned, of hope, ambition and collaborative partnership, but... It stimulated us to talk away about how do we encapsulate in uh, in in the right words, knowledge, skills, values, attitudes, ideas, self-knowledge, agency, judgment. I mean, you can have all the knowledge in the world if your judgment's bad. Uh, you're, you're in trouble. So that needs unpicking. Why does it need unpicking? Because at the moment there are no agreed purposes of schooling, and uh, I think there should be. Uh, so the only uh, we've got forty words from uh, Michael Gove in 2010 to guide us, and it amounts really. I'll reduce the forty words to say it amounts ensuring that youngsters uh, know the best that's been written and learned and understood. <coughs> I, I think it, it is that, but 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 it's a lot more, and uh, we we should be spelling that out, and we would therefore need to change an accountability system that wasn't so narrowly drawn and and affecting the behaviour of teachers. Uh, so uh, uh, have I changed my mind? Yeah, often on the way, uh, and continually changed my mind because it seems to me. That you're always learning something, and you're always putting putting one variable with another variable in order to uh, make success. And, and teachers do that every day with uh, so many different youngsters. I feel that it's much easier to be a successful primary teacher than it is secondary because a primary teacher meets perhaps thirty, perhaps sixty kids on a regular basis whereas a secondary teacher can meet as many as 400 uh, or 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 more well more and and if you think of trying to allow for kids who got anxiety problems who are going to act out um and probably need to be allowed to act out, and therefore there needs to be a place they can go, and it being recognised that if I'm about to act out, I'll go there. Some schools do all that, and they're terrific, um, but some schools see it as an opportunity to invoke their sanction system and the most vulnerable of our children therefore get into the wrong position. Now, I still wish I was in a position to influence all that, but I, I don't think I am um and it's probably proper that somebody a lot younger and there are plenty of them i I meet them every day um are burning about changing the world for the better and the best teachers are doing that
1: tim brighouse i want to bring us back to the very first question i started this interview with which was about your views on education policy and schools at the moment You spoke of an optimism about what you see happening in the world of education at the moment. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and where you see these green shoots of hope.
2: Well, I see them in individual schools, uh, groups of schools that that get excited because they've taken into their hands coherently and well, understanding research. Um, They've got a kind of free spirit about them they have a coherence about the curriculum they're going to do. They've decided that school is much more uh, than that, which has been defined by national governments. And, uh, and And the teachers are enjoying themselves and they're all behaving well together. Community love them. And if they get a, a, an offset team that doesn't understand, they're sufficiently well informed with research that when... Ofsted gives them but b- X and Y and have one or two research to do their to to establish their position. They're in a position to argue it back. And uh, I, I mean somebody like Peter Hyman at School Twenty One or Liz Robinson at, uh, at, at, at sorry Square Primary. I, I, I'm I'm not so I've only picked them out because they immediately sprang to my mind. But there are dozens, hundreds. Uh, hundreds of schools that are doing different things, and that's our next challenge. Mick and I have decided that we're going to write a book together uh, on adventures in education. So we will pick out um, case studies that do things that are that, that that are beyond most people believing that are possible, but they do them. Uh, So, for instance, if I took the XP school in uh, Doncaster, that does things that people would say, no, you can't do that. But they do it, and they do it really well. Uh, And it is highly successful. Uh, And it's a small school, a small secondary school. Anybody who said, well, you can have a small secondary school of 250 uh, would have been laughed out of court. And they're proving that you, you can do almost anything in education if you believe, if you're skilled, if you work hard, if you bring groups together, if you work as a team, you can do things. And I see more and more of that. And My, my belief is there's a Times Education Commission at the moment. Uh, some of the unions are running commissions. Industry is running a commission. Pearson's running one. Um, Fed. There are loads of groups who are saying this is the time to think again? Have a great act of parliament, re- reform the distribution of powers so that individual schools and teachers have more power because they have less power than they used to have because of the central direction. Make sure that the the, the power of the secretary of state and of Ofsted is reined in. We still need an accountability system. We still need inspection system, and mm-hmm. and and we need a good, reliable exam system. We haven't got one. And please, I'm you know horrified that pe- people are going back to exams, uh, which have got such a built in error in them, which they hide, um, and, and and they're saying, won't, "Won't it be wonderful when we get back to exams?" No, it won't. I mean, in our interview for a book. Um, uh, David Blunkett, when asked what his regrets were, he said, yeah, I never understood norm referencing. Our exam system is shot. I wish I'd realized. Uh, and uh, he's dead right. Uh, our exam system is shot and it needs reform. And we need a system where every school has a license to assess, where the, um, the, the, the Education Assessors Institute, Chartered Institute of Educational Assessors, validates lead assessors. Schools have got an assessment license and the exams are set centrally and then they are marked locally, regionally moderated, moderation being so much easier than it is now. And groups of schools are inspected, not individual schools, though there would be an individual school within the group, but in order that Schools working together can make a difference. I'm immensely optimistic that we're, we're at a period absolutely similar to the one where we started our book, Mick and I, which was um, with James Callaghan and the Ruskin speech, which was a period of doubt and disillusion after the war, um, with the arrangements after the war, and uh, led into what has developed since. I think we're in a similar period of doubt and disillusion, I think there will be a major turning of the schooling system. And what I want to do is to influence it, if I possibly can, uh, in directions that are likely to increase the number of children who experience good teachers and get the spark, um, begin to improve on their previous best and have the discipline and confidence that that spills over into other subjects from doing something really well. Um, we've tried to set out how that could uh, happen. And, yeah, I'm optimistic and I will be, um, uh, be- because you, you must be. If, if you cease to be, you know, they used to say about teachers and head teachers they needed four qualities, unwarranted optimism. Uh, they re- need to regard crisis as the norm, complexity as fun bottomless well of intellectual curiosity, and a complete absence of paranoia and self-pity. Now, if you can stick to that, particularly the unwarranted optimism, it's absolutely essential. Uh, And I I would add to that a fifth one, which is spotting gaps in hedges, having the intellectual curiosity to say, well, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't do this. And it's those groups of teachers who spotted holes in the gaps in the hedges that are the people who are producing practice that anybody would want their children to experience.
1: Set in Brighouse. I can't wait to read the book. And it's been an absolute Pleasure and a privilege speaking to you. I hope you've also enjoyed your life pedagogic.
2: I have indeed. Thank you so much, uh, Baz, for, for, for letting me uh, have time with you.
0: We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe, hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.